The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Niaz Dory. She is the coordinating director of the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance, as well as the executive director of the National Family Farm Coalition. Prior to her current role, Ms. Dory worked with Greenpeace for 11 years as a toxics and environmental justice campaigner and spent two years working in Ohio with communities along the Ohio River Valley fighting a waste technologies industry's hazardous waste incinerator. During her time at Greenpeace, Ms. Dory began working with community-based fishermen, becoming aware of the problems facing rural communities through concentration, lost markets, crumbling infrastructure, and diminished health care. She has most recently returned from a nationwide tour, hearing intimately about agriculture policies, challenges, and ways we can work together to create a more sustainable and just food system. Welcome, Ms. Dory. It's a delight to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Melinda. Well, the tour that you took recently going across the country, speaking to individuals who farm and who produce our food and who work in the fisheries industries, probably brought home many messages that you would like to share with our listeners, and I hope that we can do that, at least touch on some of those stories. The tour is called America the Bountiful. And that is actually a website where our listeners can go and look at beautiful images and hear more about the stories from your travels. Again, that's americathebountiful.org. And I want to mention something about that. You spoke most recently about hope and love. And I wonder if you could address those two emotions and why you chose to talk about hope and love in reference to your tour around the country. Well, I think... The reason I focus on hope and love in the context of the tour is because in the face of crisis that many rural communities are facing, whether they're fishing or farming communities, the places where we visit, people were taking action rooted in hope for change, for a different future, for something other than what they are living in the shadow of. And one of the themes that emerged as the reason for their hope and the reason why they're working despite all the circumstances they're facing is because of this deep love for their community, for feeding people, for being connected, for whether it's connected to the land or to the sea, to the animals that they feel responsible for, and to the people who are eating their food, that sense of responsibility ran pretty deep. And so this idea that that rural America consists of a lot of disheartened and marginalized people who are always yelling at somebody and are not getting what they want and they're angry, that really got dispelled for me because there was a lot of hope, there was a lot of love, there was a lot of concern for their communities and all the communities that are interconnected to them. 
I think what also emerged, unfortunately, was despite their love for each other and for the broader world and the hope that they had, they felt a sense of lack of worth by the rest of us, that they weren't honored for the role they played in our society, whether it's because they weren't getting paid a fair price for their work or because they lost infrastructure or somehow lost ground over the past 30, 40 years. That was also paramount, that it was not just the hope and the, and the love, but it was also, all right, so we feel this way. We know what our potential is. Why doesn't the rest of our society find what we do worthy of their support? And those were the three emotions that I think we heard the most of throughout the entire tour. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I think about when I travel through the heartland of our country, there is a lot of industrialized food available at the ready. You stop in gas stations, and for many communities, that's the only source of food unless they have their own gardens or they're producing their own livestock. And from an outsider looking in, not being a producer of food, but being an educator about food and policy, we really are up against a situation where there's ready access to quote-unquote food or lots of industrial processed food, but not ready access to the kind of food that truly nourishes us. And so on the one hand, we have a lot of access to food that we take for granted, but we don't have access to the nourishing food that you saw being produced on farms during your travels. I'm thinking specifically of people who are institutionalized, for example, that have access to industrialized food only, but don't have access to the kinds of food that is truly healing and going to help them. So I'm troubled by the fact that we do take food for granted. We're losing access to the kind of food that keeps us well. And I don't know the kinds of policies that we need to make sure that those people who are producing healing foods feel valued. Hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned those in institutions, because one of the things that we've been working on on the fishing side of things with the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance's work has been teaming up with organizations whose membership consists of institutions, major institutions, the healthcare sector and higher education specifically. And some of the policy changes that may not be in the form of what we might traditionally consider to be policy, which is usually spelled out as federal policy, congressional action, some of the policy work that we've been able to do in conjunction with organizations like Healthcare Without Harm or Real Food Challenge, for example, is changing the policies, the purchasing policies of institutions. And as those policy changes are taking effect on the institutional purchasing level, we're actually seeing a shift where those in institutions may be getting better food than the rest of us as those policies take hold. You're right that throughout our travel, we struggled sometimes. If we weren't going to be at a farm or on a fishing dock, we had to look for a supermarket often. And in many of those communities that we went to, we had to struggle to find a store to buy anything other than you know, very basic staples. Mm-hmm. And what was available in a lot of those stores, you called it industrial foods. I call it unidentified food objects because I'm not even sure if some of those things should be considered food. I agree. You know, we heard a lot 
from the dairy farmers that we met with about their concern around milk protein concentrate, for instance. Should we consider the various items available to us that include milk protein concentrate as food when most of the nutrients are derived or, or taken out of it before it's even arriving in the box or in the bottle or however way it's packaged to us? And so I'm hopeful in some ways, and this is one of the pieces that brought even more hope to folks as we shared with them that there is this work afoot to change major institutional buyers' buying habits so that they're directing more of that purchasing power towards their farms or their fishing boats because these policies mm-hmm. are policies that are recognizing the worth of small and mid-scale food producers. They're policies that are recognizing that they need to get paid their cost of production in order to have access to lives with dignity like the rest of us do, as their workers need to. And so these policies are significant and somewhat revolutionary to see being adopted on the institutional level. Yes, and I agree. I am also quite hopeful for some of the changes that I've seen as well through hospital buying, as well as institutions, which ironically are often driven by students, for example, at a university. So we've got strong leverage there. I was recently looking at some prison menus, and it's interesting that you mentioned dairy, because this is a a local jail that doesn't have any fresh dairy whatsoever. They have imitation cheese products. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, if we change that to real whole dairy products, we would not only better nourish individuals who are being detained in a jail, but we would also better support our regional dairies. And I know you stopped at a dairy in Pennsylvania. I've been watching closely what's been happening to dairymen in Wisconsin. And across the country, I think I would be fair to say that dairy farmers are hurting. So tell me some stories about your visits to dairies and some of these other institutions where we don't normally have access to see what kinds of foods are served in prisons and jails, but there too is an avenue for a population that deserves to be fed with dignity. Absolutely. Prison system is one of those places where, and one of the reasons why we're even talking about it, there was a prison strike right. by those being incarcerated, striking against conditions that are very similar, if not actually slave conditions. And unfortunately, part of those involves the work that they're required to do, and often those are in gardens that are on prisons, and the food is being exported out of their prison into the communities. And so it's a very important piece to talk about incarceration, because one of the reasons that we did the tour and the trajectory, the direction that we took the tour was to head directly south, and we had a stop in Montgomery, Alabama, because we needed to be reminded and make sure that what we're learning and what we're hearing is rooted in the fact that our current industrial food system was built on slavery and racism. And the extension of that slavery and racism is now mass incarceration, as we see majority of those in jail being people of color. So that's a really important piece. And being neglected when it comes to the food that they're served is one of those pieces of not being held in dignified conditions. I completely agree. In terms of the dairies that we visited, we visited a number of dairy communities along the tour. Altogether, we visited 53 communities and went about 13,000 miles. 
And amongst the dairy communities that we visited included California and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Iowa and elsewhere. And you're right, the dairy sector on the farming side is in deep crisis. And one of the things that I learned during this tour is how much the price that they get paid for their milk is affecting the crisis that they're feeling to such an extent where in many cases those farmers are being faced with really hard choices and some of them are taking the ultimate choice and committing suicide. We heard at a hearing about a week and a half ago that in some cases farmers are having to slaughter their cows on Wednesday to make payroll on Friday. And so there is a lot of stress in those communities and it's all rooted in this economic disempowerment where the top of the value chain, whether it's in some cases it may even be a dairy co-op, in some cases it's a regular business aggregator, distributor, buyer of dairy products that are usurping all the power and profit and what is ending up in the farmer's pocket or bank account is half of the income they expect. And one of the dairy farmers was from Pennsylvania said, imagine your paycheck being cut in half yet your work is increasing, the cost of doing your work is increasing, but every time you get that milk check, your paycheck is cut in half. And when you look at the items that are being taken away out of your paycheck, very few of them are actually benefiting you. In fact, many of them are benefiting your industrial scale competitors who don't even share your values, yet you're required, sometimes by federal policy, often by federal policy, to pay into these pools of money that end up supporting industrial agriculture before they support your community and the way that you farm. And so I think as eaters, if you eat dairy, and even if you don't eat dairy, if you support farming and particularly values-driven farming, I think insisting that farmers in general, fishermen in general, but in, right now the dairy farmers in particular – need to be made whole, and we can start doing that by making sure they're getting at least their cost of operation covered. Mm -hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Niaz Dory. She is the Coordinating Director of the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance and Executive Director of the National Family Farm Coalition. She has just returned from a nationwide tour titled America the Bountiful, and we're talking about some of the stories from the road. What did she see and hear that we all need to know about the food that we consume? Interesting story about the dairy, Ms. Dory, because what I see when I go into the supermarket is not a decreasing price of milk. If anything, it's going up. Why the discrepancy between our dairy farmer survival and what I am paying at the checkout? That's the $64 million question. Why the discrepancy? I think it's an issue of greed and power and the wrong people being in charge of our farming sector and our food sector in general, where the profits of those in the middle of the chain are prioritized over dignified lives of those considered at the bottom of the chain. In this case, those whose hands are actually in the dirt or on the udder mm -hmm. or in the ocean. And so we have misplaced priorities. And I think the danger of those misplaced priorities is more and more of our food will be categorized as unidentified food objects should we not decide to change our priorities and make sure that the farmers and fishermen are able to make 
their ends meet through mm-hmm. the right price. Right. They're going to be replaced by somebody. And unfortunately, when that replacement happens, the replacement is often an industrial scale model that is very dehumanized, not only to the people involved, but also to the animals involved. And it produces, I keep calling it unidentified food objects, you know, items that are really not nourishing us and, in fact, leading to some of the health and financial crisis that we're experiencing globally. And we have got to connect those dots between the price at the checkout that we think we're getting a bargain on this cheap substance that fills us up. But if you start looking at the ingredient list, you realize that these ingredients and this what we refer to as these unidentified food objects or junk food, that's always been sort of the term that's been used in dietitian world. We find that those items fill us up, they fill our bellies, they're cheap, but down the road they contribute to chronic diseases that are costing taxpayers and our society a lot of money and lives and sorrow. One of the issues with regard to the cost at the checkout, and I think why many producers really are suffering, is this drive for cheapness. And I often say when I speak to audiences that everyone needs to earn wages that allow them to purchase the food that is its true cost, that reflects its true value. I don't want to have to go to the farmer's market and ask the farmer to sell me something that is going to cut his profit and make him lose money at the end of the day, I have to be able to to afford the price that that farmer is asking. So we have to go farther upriver, don't we? And we have to look at the economic structure in our society. Why can't we afford good food, for example? I think we can afford good food if the, the field was leveled. Mm-hmm. And if the farmers and fishermen were able to offer their cost of production and we were able to do exactly what you said, which is to look at what are the costs of not eating good food and what are the costs not only to the taxpayer and to the government, because that's suggesting that the cost is one step removed from us through our nation as opposed to our individual pocketbooks. We are experiencing, as individuals, we're experiencing the cost of cheap food. Every time we have to pay copay for some sort of chronic disease that was affected by our diet. Every time we're dealing with issues around climate change that has come about because of poor farming practices that are releasing more carbon rather than sequestering it. Every time we deal with not being able to stick our toe in the ocean because runoff from industrial agriculture is creating algal blooms that prevent us from being able to enjoy our public commons and in fact could make us even sicker by being exposed to toxic algae. So sometimes it's really not even one step removed where those costs are embodied. It's right in our everyday, day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. And so I think as a society, we have externalized so many costs. We have pretended that that is that health care issue I'm dealing with has nothing to do with my food. And we're told, we've, we've been sold, in fact, that message that this is something different. This is your, this is all about your habits and and not really about this industrial food system that's out there. We've been carrying the blame, and the farmers and fishermen have been carrying us on their backs. And if a lot of the profits and a lot of the 
power that's currently being usurped by the traditional system was distributed amongst those who produce our food, if we had direct access to those who produce our food within our regions, so the miles it travels doesn't add a cost to it, so storage isn't added as a cost to it, so the gas that has to be paid for that truck that's going to drive it 500 or 1,000 miles isn't added to it. I believe when we have to compete only with ourselves and not with the global economies of scale, we can actually have food that we can afford and farmers and fishermen can have lives that they can be proud of and that keeps them healthy and alive and they can in turn treat their workers the way they would like to be treated. This is a domino effect that we can see and we can experience if we relocalized and re-regionalized our food system as opposed to rationalize industrialization by saying we must fit into the global economies of scale. We don't have to fit into the global economies of scale. And we experienced a number of communities, a number of farms, a number of fishermen along that trip that told us in the face of this push to become part of the global economy, we are relocalizing our food. We are making sure our CSA only serves those within the poorest county in Wisconsin. We're going to make sure that our pork only stays right here in Wyoming, where I live. And making those conscious decisions is important. And they're trying to do it. And we as eaters, citizens, people who care about our society, need to make some conscious decisions and ask some hard questions of ourselves. I love that as a way forward to be thinking, what do we need to do to restructure our food system so that we do indeed relocalize or re-regionalize the food that we're consuming? Having direct access to producers has made such a difference to me personally. I love to be able to tell people when they come to my home, I love to be able to tell them that this food came from this farmer and even describe what it's like in their environment. It's a beautiful thing, and it makes food so much more sacred. I just really appreciate that. I want to mention something. You were in Oregon on July 4th, and your blog post on America the Bountiful website, you talk about Happy Interdependence Day. And I think that that word, interdependence, needs to be a part of our daily conversation when we talk about food. Absolutely. You know, a couple of years ago, Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance and National Family Farm Coalition, when we were not part of this shared leadership model that we've adopted as of May 1st, we got together to try to figure out how do we raise the profile of what's happening in our rural farming and fishing communities and how to fix the problems with new solutions. And as we were thinking, we realized how similar both the struggles and opportunities were between these two communities. And that's why the idea of declaration of interdependence, that's when it came up for the first time. And so as we were driving across the country, we were seeing more and more of that interdependence. What I was struck by was that I could remove the name of the farm or the name of the boat from the postcard from the road and you could see that the issues were the same, that mm -hmm. they were facing three major themes emerged from those communities, corporate consolidation and concentration, economic disempowerment, and lack of access to necessary infrastructures. It didn't matter whether that was a fishing community or a farming community. When it came to what to do about it, the common solution that came out of both communities, again, was we need to build more power, 
We need to be stronger. We need to be, build alliances with those who eat what we produce and other movements that are working towards justice and equity. So this combination of identifying similar problems and identifying a clear sense of what it's going to take to effectively tackle those problems was even a further demonstration of this interdependence. And then, of course, there is that interdependence with the actual food that comes off their farms and their boats. And the fact that without it, none of us would exist. Whether we're eating real food or fake food, it's that and water and air are the most common denominators we have amongst ourselves. And so it's not just the interconnectedness between us and the land and the sea and the food that comes from both, but it's also one of the only things, one of the three things in this world that demonstrates our own individual interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. And for me, knowing that interconnectedness is really significant because it makes me take responsibility for all those others who are also interconnected. It's a heavy responsibility, and sometimes it feels a little overwhelming, but it also gives me the sense that I'm not alone in this. If I do feel this sense of interconnectedness, not only do I have a responsibility to all those others who breathe the same air and drink the same water and eat the same food, but I know they have my back. Mm. That's really beautiful. You know, I think about our country right now and how divided we seem. And I think that the message from the America the Bountiful Tour is that united we stand. And that's exactly what you've just described. We just have a couple of minutes left, and I want to give you the opportunity to bring forth anything else from this trip and from your work in this joined leadership model of these two communities, fishing and farming, that you want to leave our listeners with. I think the final thought would be that getting access to good food, healthy food, affordable food, and food that you described as beautiful and healing, it has been coined as the food of the privilege mm. in those who can afford it. We experienced beautiful, good, affordable food throughout this 13,000-mile journey by people in a wide range of incomes, class, political spectrum. And so for me, it proved that if we make the intention, if we have the intention that we're going to feed ourselves first, we're going to put the mask on ourselves first before we think about the person sitting next to us. That, to me, is what relocalizing our food system is all about. That is food sovereignty. That's us making the choice between food that's culturally, geographically, nutritionally relevant to us and food that's being forced upon us by the industrial system. Mm -hmm. We have choices to make. Sometimes they're difficult ones, but I think the most paramount one we can take, the first one we can make, is to choose food that has a history that can show us that those whose hands have touched it can have as dignified lives as the rest of us do. Some of us shouldn't have the privilege while others go without, and that system doesn't have to be the inevitable system. Another system exists. We experience some of it, and I think... The goal here is to replicate it so the rest of us can also experience it. That's fantastic. 
Well, unfortunately, we have to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most importantly, I want to thank Ms. Niaz Dory for being my guest. She is the coordinating director of the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance and executive director of the National Family Farm Coalition. If you'd like to know more about this huge trip across our big, beautiful, bountiful country, go to www.america thebountiful.org and I'll provide that link to our listeners. Thank you so much, Ms. Dory, for being my guest. Thank you for having me, Melinda.